The title of today's message is Coming Events Cast Long Shadows. It is found in the book of Luke, chapter 21, verses 5 through 19. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We ask that you would use it in our lives. Take and change our minds, transform them to think as you would have us to think so that we might live holy righteously and godly in this present world as we await the return of our Savior. It's in his name that we ask this. Amen. On a hot summer day, two gas company servicemen, one the training supervisor and the other a newbie, were out checking meters in a typical suburban neighborhood. They parked their truck at one end of the street and worked their way towards the other. At the last house, a woman looked out her kitchen window to watch as the two men checked her meter. After finishing the meter, the supervisor challenged his trainee to a race. Let's see who can make it back to the truck first. You see, the older man wanted to show the younger man that he could outrun him. As they came running up to the truck, huffing and puffing, they realized the lady from the last house was just behind them. So they stopped, turned around, and asked, Is there something wrong? Gasping for breath, she replied, When I see two gas men running as hard as they can as you two were, I figure there must be some reason to run. (laughs) What this tells us is that things are not always as they seem to be. This morning we view through the disciples' eyes the great and the wonderful second temple built by Herod the Great. What the twelve saw was an immense and beautiful building like they'd never, ever seen before. But what they failed to see was the spiritual reality beyond and behind the grand facade. They didn't or couldn't see the spiritual bankruptcy the hypocrisy and the oppression by the religious elites. They couldn't see the the legalistic system which had been imposed on the people by these men who'd replaced the truth of God with man-made laws. These men who pretended to be godly had replaced the worship of God with the worship of a building. As you'll recall from the last time we were in Luke, Jesus shared with his disciples the story of one poor widow who had given more to the temple treasury than all of the rich combined. Now having left the temple and walked to the other side of the valley, the disciples were admiring the humongous temple with the gigantic white marble stone walls and the beautiful decorations of gold that adorned it. Clearly, they were impressed by what they saw. But what was it that they saw? The truth be told, this magnificent temple would soon be completely gone. It hadn't taken long for them to forget the lesson that Jesus had just taught from the poor widow's life. That God, in his estimation, valued two mites more than the riches of all the world. Now you recall that Jesus stated that she gave more, more, more than all of the rest. And we asked, how could that be? She gave two worthless thin coins when the rich put in 
thousands of dollars. In that story, Jesus gave a quick glimpse into how he will evaluate his servants in the time to come at the Bema seat. You see, our Lord uses a different measuring stick of the life of men. We might be impressed by multi-million dollar buildings and huge budgets, but the Lord is impressed by the character and the motivation of those who worship him. I think our God would rather be worshipped in a tent than in one of the seven wonders of the world if the motivation and intent is not right. Now, last week I mentioned that this text parallels that of Matthew's account in the Olivet Discourse. And uh, Sue, can you hand me that pointer behind you? It's in the little box, remember? I keep forgetting to bring it up here with me because I'm getting old. Thank you. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus divides time between the church age and the millennial kingdom divided by the tribulation, the seven years of woe, Jacob's troubles that will come upon the world. But the rapture must happen first when all Christians are taken to be with the Lord and then hell reigns on earth for seven years before the Lord returns in his glorious appearing to reign for a thousand years. So that's what Matthew teaches in the Olivet Discourse through the words of Jesus, who tells his disciples before that he can return to set up his kingdom, these things must take place. Now, if you were a Jew listening to the teaching of Jesus, you would not be looking for the rapture of the church. You would not be looking for the tribulation. You would be looking for the Messiah to return. But since they had rejected Jesus... They were still looking for that Savior to come. Let me mention once more and underscore this. This passage on the Olivet Discourse does not precede the rapture of the church. Many are confused by this text because they confuse events in the Bible. They confuse the rapture with the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you confuse these two events, if you mix them up and muddle them in your mind, you will not have the order of the end times correctly laid out. Again, each of the Synoptic Gospels records the teaching of Jesus at the Mount of Olivet. They have minor and some major differences depending on who the audience is that they're speaking to as well as the writer's purpose. These differences have caused many problems for interpreters over the centuries. And that's basically an outflow of the fact that they did not have a consistent hermeneutic. For example, Jews always regard time as being divided into two ages. There's the present age of man in which evil runs rampant and is only fit for for destruction. This is followed, according to the Jewish mindset, by the age to come, the golden age in which God will restore Israel and its kingdom in all its glory on earth. So this teaching of Jesus has caused many prophetic problems for those who try to fit in the events that we know did happen with the events that Jesus speaks about in prophecy. For example, how do you fit in the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, the 
dispersion, the dysphoria of the Jews, when in 70 AD the Romans come and destroy not only the city but the temple of God that is found there. Jesus speaks of these terrible days that lie ahead for Israel, but the church will not face. In this discourse, Jesus challenged his disciples to remain watchful, to not be misled or weighed down by the difficulties that will come. Since Luke, the book that we're in, was written to Gentiles, he doesn't include many of these prophetic details as Matthew does because they do not relate to Gentiles or the church, but only to the nation of Israel. Now, both Matthew and Mark point out in great detail those prophetic points of interest to the Jews who will live during the tribulation, the seven years of tribulation. For example, in Mark, we are told that Jesus has just left the temple complex and walked across the valley of the Mount of Olives where Jesus will return at some point in the future in his glorious return. That was of interest to the Jews, but Luke completely leaves that detail out and goes directly to the discourse of Jesus. So we see Jesus has left the temple when he has just given the story of the poor old woman who gave the two mites. He's walked down the steep valley and up to the Mount of Olives on the other side, and they're looking across to the temple complex. It's magnificent. And this raises some questions by the Lord's disciples. Well, with that as our introduction, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21? We will pick up with verse 5. And if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to use the Pew Bible in front of you or underneath your seat, and you can find our text on page 1051. Since we reverence the text, that it is the truth of God, it is always good to follow along, or there can be one directly behind you. Luke skips over that information that was so important to the Jewish mindset, and he goes directly to his teaching. And it begins with a question from the disciples, a question about the future of the temple. In Luke 21, verse 5, we read, While some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. So here we see, The disciples are on their way back to Bethany, which is just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, where they will spend the night at Mary and Martha's house. Lazarus also lived there, who was raised from the dead. They will stay there, and they will uh, get up in the morning and return to the temple. But as they head back there, some of them turn around to look at that awesome sight. Now, some of us here have been to Jerusalem. We've stood on the Mount of Olives, And look, there's no awesome site there now called the temple. It is now the Dome of the Rock, which will someday be torn down, and a third temple will be built in its place. So they turn, and they look at that beautiful building, its size and its craftsmanship. And the overall impression by the temple complex was on their minds and hearts. And they speak of it with wonder and amazement. And one of the disciples notices the adornment of the walls of the temple, the beautiful stones and the embellishments. So for us to better understand the mindset of these men, I'd like to give you a brief overview of what has taken place on this historic site that the three main religions of the world argue and fight over and claim as their own. As you know, it was 
Mount Moriah that David wanted to build a house upon for the Lord. But because David was a man of bloodshed, the Lord would not allow it. Instead, David's son Solomon was given the privilege of building the house of God. Solomon began doing so in the fourth year of his reign, which was 969 B.C. The first temple built by Solomon was finished in 962, seven years later, B.C., This temple was made of cedar wood that had been shipped in from Lebanon and white limestone, which is native to the city of Jerusalem. Since the temple was built atop a mountain, the top had to be leveled off and a foundation platform built. So it was leveled, literally the top of the mountain was removed and leveled uh, with four walls forming a square. The square was then filled in with dirt and rock to form the foundation upon which the temple would be built. After it was finished, after all was said and done, this temple came under attack from enemies and was plundered several times. The temple would then be renovated by the people and worship renewed. But again, in 586 B.C., the temple was desecrated by the Babylonians, who then carried off the Jewish people in the first dysphoria, and they were carried away And then they were taken captive by Cyrus, the king of Persia, who allowed at a point in the future, 300 years down the road, he allowed some of the remnant Jews, led by Nehemiah and Ezra, to return and to build a new temple. The new temple took 20 years to build. The second temple took 20 years to build. And it was nothing like this uh, temple built by Solomon. It was small. It lacked the grandeur and the beauty of its predecessor. In fact, Ezra tells us that some of the old Jewish men, when they first saw the completed temple, wept with a loud voice because it was so disappointing. Another 300 years pass, and the temple is again attacked and sacked by invaders, particularly Antichus Epiphanes, who, as you know, slaughtered a pig on the altar in the temple, which is called the Abomination of Desolation. Now, just to be clear, I said abomination, not abomination. Okay? Just want to be clear about that as possible. This took place in the year 168 B.C. Three years later, the temple was again cleansed and consecrated and rededicated by Judas Maccabeus. And it was used as the place of worship until the Roman emperor Pompey the Great captured the city and took over the temple, though he did not destroy the temple. Instead, He instituted a series of puppet kings to rule over Israel. Now that's when the story comes to where we are. In 73 BC, Herod the Great was made king, and he became the great builder of edifices in Israel. As you can see behind me, there is a model of the temple as Herod reconstructed it. He altered it by expanding it, and beautifying it, so much so that it no longer resembled the temple that had been built so many years ago. Herod began work on this complex, enlarging it in 19 B.C. Thousands upon thousands of slave laborers were brought in, and they continued to work all through the life of Herod and even after his death, finally finishing the temple in 63 A.D. A total of 82 years were taken to complete what was known as Herod's temple, the second temple. The grandeur and the beauty of Herod's temple was undeniable. It outshone that of Solomon's. It was beautiful. 
And just seven years after it was completed, it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that this second temple was adorned with white marble stones. This limestone was brought up and then covered with marble. These boulders were 70 feet in length, 18 feet high, some of them, and 12 feet in depth. The brilliance of the stones could be seen from miles away in the Middle Eastern sun, shimmering like a snow-clad mountain. Some of the stones can still be seen today in the base of what is called the Wailing Wall. I've been underground. I've seen them. They're huge, monstrous. They don't even know how they were moved into place. Now, Josephus also describes the ornamentation on the outside of the temple building. It included tapestries, golden grapevine sculptures. We have a painting on our wall. They had real sculptures made of solid gold. The clusters, the national symbol of Israel, the grape clusters, some of them were said to be as tall as a man. So the temple was ostentatious. It was beautiful to look at, and it wowed the disciples. Now the Lord, knowing this question that is in their minds, even though it has not been asked, answers this question that is on their mind in verse 6. Look with me there. Jesus says, As for these things that you are looking at, The days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. Do you remember that moment in time when you turned on the TV and saw for the first time the World Trade Center buildings collapsing to the ground? Do you remember that? I do. I was at home working on the back porch, and my daughter Joanna called me and told me to turn on TV and watch it, that the plane had just run into the building, and the building had just collapsed in on herself. I told her it wasn't funny to tell a joke like that. But then I flipped on the TV, and I saw for myself, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. There was no way this 110-foot story building could collapse in on itself in dust and smoke. And then it happened again. It was unbelievable. Here Jesus is saying this biggest building in the world was going to be destroyed and not one stone would be left upon itself. It would come down completely. Destruction would be complete. So how did you feel at that moment again when the World Trade Center came crashing down? If you remember those feelings, you can sympathize with how the disciples felt, how they reacted to this statement of Jesus. They would have been thinking, no way that could happen. They wondered, how could a building with the size, massive stones like that just be totally dismantled? Jesus said not one stone will be left upon another. The key to understanding this text, though, is in the phrase, the words, the days will come. This is a future event that Jesus is talking about. So for us to understand the meaning of this, we need to see that the Bible sometimes reveals very similar events two or three times in one prophetic utterance. Two events, or three events, mixed up as one. So then, if several events in the future are spoken of at the same time in the same prophecy, it surely leads to misunderstanding. It surely leads to confusion. 
There's an example, for, for example, in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, where the prophet speaks of Exodus, the Exodus of Israel from Egypt. And he also uh, speaks of the Exodus of Mary, Joseph, and the boy Jesus from Egypt. Both of events are being referred to, though they're not stated in that way, both are being referred to as the Son of God leaving Egypt. Two separate events separated by 3,000 years, and yet God prophetically refers to both of them as we know from other scriptures. The explanation for this can be seen in the diagram behind me on the screen. As you can see, this is the prophet, and what the prophet saw was these prophetic truths found in scripture, and they appeared like mountaintops. But what is not told that there is in the valley other truths but he can only see this future events taking place, and at times he mixes the mountaintops up, confusing them in the mind of the interpreter. So when the prophets looked forward, it was always they were seeing these mountain peaks, but you couldn't tell the distance. You ever see all seven of the mountains lined up here in, in Washington? And how some of them look very similar, especially in a haze. Oftentimes, the Bible student can mix up the timing of these events because the prophecies are mixed together. So then, how does the destruction of the temple that we know took place in 70 AD fit into the prophecy that Jesus will be talking about here? We know that Rome burnt the city to the ground and that the temple complex was completely destroyed except for the foundation of the second temple. How do we know where the parousia, the glorious appearing of Christ, fit into this same prophecy that Jesus is giving here in this text, which we will get into in just a moment? What we know, though, is that the disciples were asking this question in their mind because they ask, when will this take place? When will the temple fall? We see these questions directly asked in Matthew, Mark, and two of the questions are found here in Luke as well. In Mark's account, it says, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were questioning him in private. So we see here that the four disciples, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, the three inner disciples, and Andrew thrown in, are asking him these direct questions as they look across the Mount of Olives. What's going on here, Jesus? What are you talking about? When will the temple be destroyed? What are the signs of its coming destruction? And when will the end of the age ensue? Again, I'd like to remind you that in the Jewish mindset for these 12 disciples, there were only two ages, the age that they lived in and the age to come. But Luke focuses upon this text written to Gentiles for their interest. He leaves out two of the questions and goes directly to one of them. Matthew and Mark record three questions, but Luke only one. He quotes that for us in verse 7. The disciples asked the question about the timing of this future destruction of the temple in verse 7. They question him, Teacher, I love that, Teacher, teach us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? They asked the question of when. Remember when you were in elementary school and you had those four questions you were supposed to ask whatever you were reading? Who, what, where, and when? 
They ask when. When is all this going to come down? You know what? The same question. That same question is on the hearts and the minds of believers today. When will the rapture occur? People spend their lifetime studying the Bible, wanting to know the date and the time and the place that Jesus will return. What will be the signs that will precede Jesus? Interestingly, the questioner, whether it was James or John or Andrew or Peter, we don't know, uses the Greek term tauta, which is translated into English as these things, the same exact word that Jesus used in verse 6. So we know that they're asking him about this very same thing, this event, the destruction of the temple. But Jesus doesn't answer their question directly. He doesn't tell them that the temple will fall in 70 AD when an army led by Titus, the son of Vespasian, lays siege to the city for months on end, and it's a horrible end. 1.1 million people were living in the city, and they died of starvation. They were eating each other by the end of the siege. Only 100,000 were carried off into captivity by the Romans. Israel was obliterated at this time. The temple was destroyed, and so was the city and the rest of the nation. What was Jesus telling them? How did this fit in? What were the conditions that would precede his glorious appearing is what what they are asking. As I said, these kind of prophecies often have what's called the law of double fulfillment. That is, there is a partial fulfillment to be followed later by a more complete fulfillment. As I mentioned earlier, the example from Hosea, the partial fulfillment of the prophecy that my son shall come out of Egypt was Israel being led out of Egypt in the Exodus and coming to the nation of Israel. It came to a complete fulfillment when his literal son, Jesus, was led out of Egypt along with his mother and father and they returned to the city of Nazareth. So these predictions that are given in the Bible, these prophecies often have a partial fulfillment with a larger and complete fulfillment later on in history. So most scholars believe that the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem was the partial fulfillment. And there is a time coming in the Great Tribulation when the third temple will be built in Israel, and there will be another destruction of it, the complete fulfillment of it. We see this in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 2, when the Lord will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. We've never seen that in history, have we? Only the Romans were in 70 AD. But Zechariah tells us the Lord will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, and the houses plundered, the women's ravished, and half of the city will be exiled, and the rest of the people will be cut off from the city. And he goes on to tell of the destruction of the nation of of Israel and the temple being destroyed. Clearly, this didn't happen in 70 AD, but must wait until the great tribulation just before the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Two other prophets in the Old Testament speak of this coming day as well, so it's not an isolated prophecy. Micah prophesied in chapter 3 and verse 12, on account of you, 
Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. Then over in Jeremiah, just to confirm this in your heart and mind, in chapter 26 and verse 18, he says, Micah prophesied in the days of Hezekiah and spoke to all the people, saying, Zion will be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem will become ruins in the mountain of the, of the house as the high places of a forest. There it is. Confirming what Jesus would later say as they looked across from the Mount of Olives to the temple place. This terrible event is coming, but when is what the apostles or the uh, disciples wanted to know? Jesus gives them some clues beginning in verse 8. Look with me there. He said, See to it that you are not misled. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. The time is near. But don't go after them. Do not go after them. The Lord tells his disciples four specific things must take place before the destruction of the temple can take place. I believe all of these things occurred in the life of the disciples. All of these things occur in our life, but all of them will increase in occurrence and in intensity during the tribulation the first half of the tribulation particularly. Let's look at the first warning Jesus gives his followers in what I believe is every age. He warns them not to be led astray. The Greek verb used here is pleio, which is where we get our English word planet from. That verb was used in Greek literature to describe the orbits of the planets compared to the predictability of the stars and the constellations. Of course, as you know, we can plot our destination if you're at sea by the planets and the constellations, but the Earth and the other planets' orbits are not perfect. They vary. That's how we get our seasons. So in some secular Greek literature, that word went on to carry the idea of air, the error of being led astray, or the idea of deception. So the Lord warns his disciples in every age not to be deceived by the many false messiahs that will arise. Again, it's the historian, the Jewish historian Josephus, who speaks of the many counterfeits that will, will arise and did so in the first century. Today, we have plenty of counterfeit messiahs, those who run around claiming to be the reincarnation of Jesus. We've all heard of Sung Young Moon, who claimed to be the great I Am. We've all heard of David Koresh and his Waco, Texas cult that led to such a great disaster. In fact, Wittipedia, my Bible for information, states that there have been 720 claims to messiahship since Christ died. The best known of those claimants today is a man who is of Puerto Rican descent named Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda. He created and led the cult called Crescendo and Garcia in Miami, Florida. Watch this. Preacher Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda is nothing if not a self-made man. Founding his own religious sect in a Miami warehouse... He now spreads his word via his own satellite channel, with worshippers following him like a rock star. But his lavish lifestyle and curious beliefs have more than a few people wondering if he's suffering, well, from a messiah complex. CNN's John Zarella reports. 
Nine bodyguards surround 60-year-old Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda. Dressed in a finely tailored suit, he greets his followers as he walks a red carpet into a 500-seat auditorium packed with members of his congregation. His presence brings tears of joy and an outpouring of song. De Jesus is founder and leader of Creciendo en Gracia, or Growing in Grace, a religious sect that claims millions of members around the world. But there's no way to know for sure. You receive it, you accept it, you confess it, and it's done unto you. The sign on the pulpit looks like the American Eagle, but reads, The Government of God on Earth. It is a sect with some very different beliefs. We don't believe in sin, we don't believe in the devil, we don't believe that there is such a place like hell. Which makes the Ten Commandments irrelevant. Those rules are good for the society, but not for the kingdom of God. The truth is not found in the Gospels, says De Jesus, but in the letters of Paul. De Jesus once said he was a reincarnation of Paul. Then two years ago, he proclaimed himself Christ. Oh, I won't die. No, I won't die. You're not dying. No, no, I won't die. Even if you try to kill me. And his followers believe him. The man Christ Jesus is here among them. Jose died two years ago. And he didn't come back to life. I guess he wasn't the Messiah after all. Luke wants to tell his Gentile readers not to be misled by such goofs, such false messiahs. They arose in their day, they arise in our day, and they will surely arise in the tribulation to come. They will say, I am here, the time is near, follow me, give me your money. But this prophecy will not be completed fully until the tribulation comes. The point here is crystal clear. Believers are not to expect the immediate return of Jesus. And they are not to follow those who claim to be the Messiah. Jesus says, do not go after them. So how do you explain these people in Miami? When the destruction of the temple happened in 70 A.D., people were misled. They believed that the Messiah had come, many of them. We should not go after them. Next on the list of events that Jesus says will transpire in this text is found in verse 9 and 10. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first. But the end does not follow immediately. But the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. As you know, our country has been involved in many conflicts across the world. In my lifetime alone, there's been five major conflicts, including Korea, Vietnam, Iraq twice, and Afghanistan. And there were multitudes of other little wars. A recent study has revealed that since the time of Christ, there has been less than 100 years of peace on earth. Just as Jesus stated, for these things must come to pass first Did you know during Jesus' lifetime, they had what was called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome? But it wasn't really a peace, because Rome went around and conquered and smashed 
anybody and everybody in their way. They thought it was peace, but they brought conflict and war to the world. So this warning is that there will be wars, and rumors of war is very appropriate. In Jesus' day, after he died and rose again, there were wars and rumors of war. In our day today, and certainly during the tribulation that is to come, man always wants what his neighbor has. And that's because of the sin nature which is buried deep down within our breast. This will all come to its height. It will increase in intensity and frequency during the 70th week of Daniel when the wars and the rumors of war will culminate with what many call the Third World War. When nations rise against nations. This conflict is of divine necessity for Jesus as it must happen first before he can return. So then from this text we know that before the Lord can return in his glorious appearing, there must be counterfeit messiahs, conflicts between nations, and in verse 11 we learn that there must be great calamities in the heavens that take place. It says there, there will be great earthquakes, and in various places, plagues and famines, and global warming will be all over the earth, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Now I threw that global warming stuff in. Just to see if you're listening. In Jesus' day and in our day and in the tribulation, there will be great disturbances in heaven, but those two will increase in intensity and significance in the tribulation period. I'd like you to highlight in that text there the word great. There will be great earthquakes. We've had an earthquake right before I came. In uh, 2000, there was an earthquake here in the Squally Valley, but it wasn't a great earthquake. These earthquakes will be nothing like have ever been experienced before, in which millions will die. This will cause an outbreak of famine, and pestilence will sweep across the world, and millions upon millions will die during the tribulation. Now, many look to the earthquakes today and the famines and the disturbances in the heavens, and they say, is the Lord about to return? And the answer to that is no. Did you know there was a study done of the 20th century? And it revealed that there were 700 large earthquakes that took place. And yet Jesus didn't return because those weren't great earthquakes. And in fact, we just had a disturbance in our own country. Last week we had the hurricane, I think it was called Arthur. Isn't that right, Arthur? Jesus stresses here not only the natural occurrences on earth, but those in the skies as well, the comets and the meteors and the eclipses and the stars and the moon. In the past, these events, eclipses, terrified people. They didn't know what was going on when the sun would darken or the moon would go out. But during the tribulation period, it will be a blood moon. And all the stars will go completely black at one point. There will be no light in the sky far more extensive and intensive than we've ever seen before. These will be the signs of his glorious return. They will exist during the life of the disciples, our life, but they will intensify in the time to come during the tribulation. So not only will there be counterfeit messiahs, worldwide conflicts and heavenly calamities, but there will also be a great outbreak of persecution against believers, the likes which have never been seen before. Just this past week, we saw ISIS beheading and crucifying Christians in Mosul. And 
in other places in Iraq. If you didn't see them on the internet, internet, they're there for you to view. It doesn't get any play in the media. They crucified Christians last week. They weren't playing games. They nailed them to a cross, and they died. There's persecution in this world. Did you know that, of believers? We're persecuted in this country right now for our faith. We're diminished. We're called homophobes and racists because we believe what the Bible says. Persecution like this is going to be tamed to what happens in the time to come. We read in verse 12 and 16 and beyond. But before all these things, Jesus says, they will lay their hands on you and they will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and to prison and bringing you before kings and governors. Why? For my name's sake. By this type of persecution, believers will be branded. During the tribulation, there will be an excess of religious and political persecution. This happened in the first century. You'll recall from your own Bibles in the book of Acts that the apostles were dragged before the tribunals of, at the Sanhedrin. They were beaten. Some were placed in prisons and some were even killed. Who can forget the stories of James and Stephen being killed for their faith? But in the tribulation period, believers will be killed in mass by the thousands upon thousands. In the first century, it was the Jewish Sanhedrin meeting out these punishments. Christians were beaten and banished and bludgeoned to death, as I said. And so it continues in our day, especially in the Middle East and in Africa. Africa, where churches are burned down and believers are tortured or, as I said, beheaded beheaded and crucified. There are so many examples of this, I don't even know where to start to prove it to you. There's a Sudanese Christian woman that's been in the news. Just because she's a believer, she was sentenced to be whipped, not just once, but 40 times, and then hung until she was dead. And what was her crime? She believed in Christ. How about the Christian women who are being raped in Iraq and used for holy jihad, they call it. Some of these women are raped because they didn't pay their jizya tax, which is imposed on Christians by Muslims. You know, they're building a new caliphate in Iraq and Syria, and they have promised to dismember anyone who does not follow their Sharia law. During the last 100 years, more Christians have died in persecution than all of the other centuries combined. We are living in a time of persecution. But that pales from what will happen during the Great Tribulation. And why is all of this done? For my name's sake, says Jesus. You claim the name of Jesus and you will be persecuted. If nobody's persecuting you today, then you're not claiming the name of Jesus for people to know it. Is there enough evidence in your life to convict you of being a Christian? If not, you'll live a perfectly harmless life and will be left alone. But if you claim the name of Jesus, you face the possibility of being jailed. Ask Dinesh D'Souza. In the time to come, you'll be tortured and killed when the worldwide government exercises its control as it's led by the Antichrist. In fact, the leaders of the Jewish state during the tribulation will join forces with the Antichrist 
and make this come to fruition. And the reason again for this persecution of believers? For his name's sake. But persecution only won't from the gov- come from the government. It didn't in the first century, it doesn't today, and it won't surely come from only the government in the time to come and during the tribulation. We learn in verse 16 that it also involves the family. But you will betray, be betrayed even by your parents and brothers and relatives and friends who will put some of you to death. This, of course, happened during the first century. It was a crime in Israel to leave your faith. And you were ostracized by your family. Sometimes people were put to death. The least was they lost their jobs. Again, we see examples in the life of James and Stephen. This is happening in the world today. In Muslim areas, it's called honor killings. When a young boy or girl becomes a Christian, the Muslim father will kill that child. But in the tribulation, it will become commonplace for believers to be put to death at the consent of their very own family and friends. The truth is faith in Christ has always been a divider of families and friendships. The Lord said that he would divide mother against son, father against daughter. Families will be divided for his name's sake. In the tribulation period, 144,000 Jews sealed who will come to know Christ as their personal Savior will be persecuted and killed during the tribulation. They will suffer for their faith. This suffering will be even greater than the suffering that has taken place under the totalitarian governments that we know as Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union, the Red Chinese, and the North Koreans. Such persecution delivered by the pogroms and the final solution of Adolf Hitler will pale in comparison in the days to come. We are surely tempted to ask why. The answer is given again by Jesus in verse 17. You will be hated because of my name, says verse 17. If they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Clearly, that is the case. To the name, the name of Christ, any time in human history, but especially during the tribulation, will bring you persecution not only from your government. We're seeing that today clearly but from your families and the world at large. Well, the truth is, the world has always hated Christ followers. But there's one good thing about all this. Believe it or not, there is a good thing that comes out of this. According to verse 13, it will lead for an opportunity for your testimony. One of the early church fathers, a man named Tertullian, once said this, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When persecution comes, so does the opportunity to witness for his name's sake. Did you know that the word English word martyr comes from the Greek term martis, which meant witness? So out of this disaster, Christians dying for their faith will be the opportunity to bear witness to his love and grace and mercy for his name's sake. The question is how do you and I respond? to such opportunities. Do you use these opportunities of persecution that come in our lives in little ways to speak about Jesus? Or do we try to defend and justify ourselves before people? 
The Lord has left us here on planet Earth not to enjoy life, to think about us. It's not about me. It's about him. He left us here to make disciples. How are you doing at that? Are you fulfilling the mandate to be a witness for his namesake? Are you preparing ahead of time? Jesus says there's no need to do that in verse 14. So then make up your minds, says the Lord Jesus. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. The Greek word that's used there and translated to make up your mind is prolimiteo. And it means to practice, to gesture, or to rehearse a dance. So then believers are not called to be actors. We're called to be witnesses. We don't need to fret and worry ahead of time about what will we will need to say when we are attacked. We don't need to practice or to memorize our lines before we are criticized. What we need to do is to rely on the Lord and His Spirit. For verse 15 says that He will give you the words. He will give you utterance and wisdom with which none of your opponents will be able to resist or to refute. This is, of course, the guidance of the Holy Spirit who's come to live inside of us. He will give us the right word and the words of wisdom to say when we are attacked by those who hate Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't be killed or suffer for our faith, but we will preach the truth. When we live by faith and walk by faith, people notice the difference. Now, as an aside, just to let you know, this is a verse that has nothing to do with the preparation of sermons or Sunday school lessons ahead of time. We're not supposed to not prepare for our Sunday school lesson or prepare for our sermon and just trust the Holy Spirit. I've heard that preached before, and that's just silliness. This is within the context of the tribulation period when Christians are attacked and brutalized. We aren't supposed to prepare at that time to defend ourselves before the court of public opinion, but trust God those kind of attacks, and even today, these kinds of attacks come suddenly without preparation. And God will, through the Spirit, be our comforter and provide the words that we need to speak. Now, this part of the text covers the first half, the first three and a half years of the tribulation. But certainly, these truths are applicable to any time, even the greater tribulation. Now, Luke closes this portion of the discourse that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olivet with verse 18, which speaks of the protection of God for his people. Look with me there. Yet not a hair of your head will perish, and by your endurance you will gain your lives. Now again, these verses often confuse people. The reformers like to look to these two texts to justify their claim that believers must persevere to the end in order to be saved or that somehow we must endure to the end. At first blush, these words might even seem to contradict. They do seem to contradict what Jesus has just said in the text. So how do we reconcile these two verses with what just preceded it? How can we Make this make sense. When we know that persecution brings the possibility of death, that certainly is a head, a hair on your head perishing. How can both of these truths be true at the same time? Obviously, we must understand that this is placed within the context of God's word and that God in his character is sovereign, and that he's in control of all the events that take place in our lives. So we can be assured that the end is secure. 
That doesn't necessarily mean both our physical and our spiritual security. We are assured that the soul, once it reaches the place where it is with the Lord, that we will be secure. And then at some time in the future, when the Lord returns, he will gloriously reunite us, our bodies, with our souls. So we can be assured that our hairs on our heads will once again be joined to the soul and be secure. We see this same thought expressed by Paul about his own life when he, life when he writes Timothy saying this, At my first defense, no one supported me. All had deserted me. May it not be counted against them. The Lord will rescue me. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom, to him in the glory forever and ever. I believe that the Lord is comforting comforting the hearts and the minds of those who will suffer persecution in every age by bringing to their remembrance that God is in control and that he has purposes in our lives that we do not know, but the end, in the end, we will be with him totally secure and fulfilled. Our Heavenly Father is the only one that can determine the number of our days, not the evil machinations of the devil and his minions. So then for us to gain our lives by our endurance doesn't mean that we pull ourselves up by self-effort, that we're saved by keeping a commitment unto the end. What it does mean is the believer is completely assured that even in the midst of persecution, even if he suffers death, You can trust God to deliver you safely home. He's got our back. But it's not a guarantee against the experience of physical harm or even martyrdom in this life. My goodness, all we have to do is look at the 12 disciples, and 11 of them died horrible deaths, save one. The promise of God then is clear. He controls all things, and ultimately our destiny is in his hands. Semper Fi. Semper Fi. All right, how do we apply this to our lives today? If the Bible isn't applicable today to our lives, it's worthless. How do we apply this truth to our lives? When Jesus was teaching his disciples on the Mount of Olives, he was encouraging them to do something. And what is that? To live a holy life. To live a holy life despite or in spite of the possibilities that lie ahead of us in the future, including persecution. No matter what dispensation you live in, whether the church age or the tribulation, we should be reminded of Jesus' warning. Don't be deceived by false messiahs. Don't be led astray. Don't set times. Don't be afraid. Be anxious for nothing, but live by faith, trusting the Lord. We should never be deceived because we have the word of God to guide us, to direct us. There's no need to set dates. We should never be afraid of the future, not even when we are led by the worst president since World War II, according to a recent survey done over the past weekend. There's no reason to be afraid. God is in control. Throughout all of human histories, there's been wars and rumors of war. But the Lord has always taken care of his people, bringing them safely home. We should not fret when persecution comes. We should always 
rejoice. For it is a good thing to be counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake. It also gives us the grand opportunity to be a witness to his love and mercy. Just think about Stephen, who saw the Lord in the skies as it opened up above him, and he prayed for those who killed him. We've been called to love our enemies, not hate them. So don't give up, don't give in, even when everyone around you is losing their heads. Stand firm on the precious truth of the word of God. Even when men hate you, they can never do lasting harm to you, for we know our future is secure with him. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for this day to know we are secure in the love of our Savior and that someday soon we will live in his presence for eternity. Help us, Father, to hold that truth sacred in our hearts and minds when difficult days come. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.